Thank you so much, Oklahoma Academy. Church family, I'd like to invite you back for more worship this evening at our Vespers where they will continue to bless us. You know, sometimes uh, musical groups are here and they sing different songs in the services. But backstage, I was just praying, Lord, help them to sing the same song this service they sang in the first service. What a beautiful song. Let's pray. Lord, give us hearts to worship. Save us from the distractions and the deceits of this age that would rob us of our real highest calling and fulfillment in living lives and speaking words and singing songs that would bring joy to us and glory to your name. And now, Lord, as we open the word, I pray, save us. Save us from wrong ideas. Save us from distractions. Save us from the superficialities of this age. And thank you for the Sabbath. And I just pray, teach us and touch us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Special weekend. It's a special Sabbath. I want to talk with you this morning about the sacrifice of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13. Find Matthew and just page back a little bit. We don't go to these minor prophets often enough. Ellen White will write that the messages of these minor prophets are more for us than they were for the ones that they were originally authored to. The book of Zechariah, and I'm looking at chapter 13. And I want to look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This morning, I want to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to make you aware of the history and the typology associated with this very special mountain just to the east of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a city of seven hills. Of course, so is Rome. And of course, that number has special significance but one of the hills, not the absolute tallest, but probably the next to tallest hill at about 2,600 feet is the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives, about 400 and some feet down the side of the mountain, is the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It was a garden of about 1,200 square meters, so sizable. And it was just off the path between Bethany and Jerusalem. And of course, Bethany is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha reside. And it's also a favorite destination of Jesus. We know from looking back over the history just in the days of Jesus that this is where Nicodemus came out to meet Jesus. We know that it was a place Jesus loved to sleep and rest and pray. There was a famous sermon given here, and in that sermon, some of the most sublime things were shared with humanity. We also know that it was on this mountainside that Jesus, after leaving the temple for the last time on a Wednesday during the Passion Week, would go out and sit looking at the Temple Mount and explain to the disciples what the signs of his coming were. It was at the top of this mountain that the crowd gathered for the glorious journey of Jesus on a Sunday, the triumphal entry, and it was partway down this mountain that Jesus stopped and wept uncontrollably. This mountain is associated with a variety of things that made it a very, very special place. In the Jewish Midrash or commentary, there is a tradition that states that all of those who have died in the Jewish faith will be summoned through the caverns of the earth on the great resurrection morning and they will come up on the Mount of Olives because, of course, as we're going to see in a few minutes, the Bible says that the Mount of Olives will split open wide. This mountain was a favorite place of Jesus and it was the pivotal place for the experience of man. It's a sedimentary mountain. It has soft, chalky rock, which is why it wasn't a place to really build on, but it did become a cemetery. And if you go there today, there are more than 150,000 graves across the side of this mountain. It's been a cemetery for the last 3,000 years. When we think about this mountain, we realize that when David was fleeing from Absalom during the coup, he was partway up this mountain when he stopped and he worshiped. He was leaving, going out to the east. When we examine the history of this mountain, we know that it is where Solomon, in his apostasy, set up the temples and the idols. And so before the days of Josiah, you could look out from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and you would see sticking out above these trees these huge grotesque idols. And in the temples, in these idols, some of the most licentious and heinous acts of worship were committed. In the days of Josiah, we know that he tore these things down and rolled these stones into the Kidron Valley. This is the history of Olivet. And we know just a bit more from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 12, that it's a Sabbath day's journey. Now, for some reason, God inspired the writers to include that little tidbit of information. And so let us not be too careless in the way we keep our Sabbath, lest our Sabbath not be able to keep us in the raging tides of secularism and worldliness. It's all part of a general era. We, area. We know that the Temple Mount was called Mount Moriah, 
a Hebrew word from Mori and Yah, Mori meaning my teacher, and Yah be a shortened version of Yahweh. God is my teacher. But there's probably one more thing that we haven't looked at. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10, I want you to see that before God allowed Jerusalem to fall into the hands of Babylon, not only was the Shekinah glory removed from the temple, so also was the Ark of the Covenant. But I want you to show you how this works because it, in typical form, represents the journey of Jesus in the end because we know that Jesus left the temple on that morning he was going to be received into heaven. He crossed the Kidron Valley. He went by the Garden of Gethsemane where he paused according to the desire of ages. Everybody there could stop and have a sober, reflective moment. He goes to the top of the Mount of Olives and he is received up into heaven 40 days after the resurrection. I want you to see how long God suffers with his people and I want you to see in typology and symbol form the Old Testament version of a similar experience. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, you remember there were three sieges to Jerusalem. One took Daniel. About nine or ten years later, another took 10,000 artisans and craftsmen and the prophet Ezekiel. And the final one, some almost 20 years later, destroyed the city. Daniel went as the potential of coming back to be a puppet king. Ezekiel went not so much for that hope because I think Nebuchadnezzar may have given up on the idea of being able to really subject Jerusalem and Israel to anyone's rule. And it was in that period of time between Ezekiel being exiled to Babylon, where Daniel is, and the destruction of Jerusalem, which is coming because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. They wouldn't listen. You remember Jeremiah told them, if you'll surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll live. But they refused. And I want you to see what happens before that final destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. This is the Shekinah glory. It's leaving the temple. The Ark of the Covenant will be spirited away and hid. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant will be found before Jesus returns. Archaeological evidence that it's not a fable. But it goes farther. Verse 19, When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and they rose from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So I want you to see what's happening. The Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the Mount of Olives to the east will be called the Mountain to the East or the Mount of Corruption because of what Solomon did to create the pagan worship and to establish it on the Mount of Olives. And I want you to see what's happening is the cherubim are leaving the temple. They're moving to the east gate. That's verse 19. Now turn a chapter over to chapter 11 of Ezekiel, verse 23. And I want you to see what goes from there. It says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. 
So I want you to see this progression. When God is about to remove his holy light from the temple, he goes from the temple to the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives. Now, while I was in El Salvador, I listened to an associate of mine preach a sermon, and he referenced to the book of Zechariah chapter 14. So take your Bibles and turn back to Zechariah again. Zechariah chapter 14, very important text in our understanding of the future of this earth. Find the book of Malachi and back up just a few pages. Zechariah chapter 14, and I'll begin with verse 4. It says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Now, this is the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase Mount of Olives is used. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. And as I was sitting there listening to that sermon, I'm thinking to myself, there's a variety of ideas I didn't think all of these things, but this is caught up in my thinking. There's a variety of ideas associated with this. Some believe that God's going to interject himself at the very end of the age and splitting the mountains is going to be a way of escape for those who have gathered in Jerusalem. It is our understanding, and I believe completely and properly so, that that mountain's not going to split until just before the final battle and when that mountain splits, it'll be at the end of the thousand years of the millennium. And the new Jerusalem is going to come down and sit on that plain. And of course, we know that the forces of evil will be resurrected in the last resurrection and they will seek to attack that city one last time. And they will show that there is absolutely no sense of remorse or repentance or turning away from sin but as I was sitting in the sermon, I'm thinking to myself, why does the Mount of Olives split wide open? Why not Mount Moriah? Why not Jerusalem itself? This morning, I want to take you on a journey and explain to you the riddle. And I want to assure you that Jesus has won the victory, and that victory was one on the side of the mountain to the east. Of course, it was confirmed on a little hill called Golgotha as well. But I want you to understand how pivotal the two are in the plan of salvation. When we look at the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane, we're confronted with a story. It's a story recorded in Matthew chapter 26, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there. Jesus has celebrated the Lord's Supper. He has shown himself willing to serve in the lowest place. He has wrapped the towel around himself and done what no one else would do. But now it's time to leave. And they're going to leave Jerusalem and head to the east. They're going to the mountain to the east. They're going to Olivet. They're going to Gethsemane, which means the oil press. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now I want you to stop and think about what that means. (laughs) If you're the creator of all life and your soul is grieved to the point of death, something very significant is going on. Jesus is entering into a battle with darkness where he will pay the price of sin that will precede the price that is exacted from him on Calvary. But I want you to understand that the battle with Lucifer, the wrestling match between light and darkness, right and wrong, is about to take place and it will be hidden beyond the eyes, at least largely speaking, even of the apostles Although, had they the energy and earnestness to watch, they could have. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. And he prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time, and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. Now, I want to remind you all that just a few hours before... Jesus had told Peter, before the next 24 hours elapses, you will deny me. And Peter says, I will not. And Jesus says to him, you will. And you may not have noticed it before, but you might ought to notice it now, that in verse 35 of this same chapter, it says all of the disciples said the same thing too. So lest we be a little too hard on the most preeminent preacher of the 12, let us not forget that they all were right there nodding their heads up and down at the moment of Jesus suggesting the doubt of their devotion. And lest any of us should be too proud, they actually genuinely did love him. Not like they would, but they did. I want to take you for a few moments inside the journey back and forth between the 12 and that place where Jesus wrestled. I'm going to take advantage of a commentary called The Desire of Ages, and I'm going to let the author's insights and inspiration do for us in detail what the Bible does in broad strokes. Writing in page 685, the author states, but now he seemed to be shut out of the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with the transgressors. 
The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear, and upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does the sin appear to him, so great is its weight of guilt which he must bear, that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his Father's love. And feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Now, we tend to think of that moment in Golgotha where Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we forget what the garden gave by way of experience. And all that I'm reading to you right now is a commentary on the garden. I want you to understand there's a reason that the Mount of Olives splits open and the New Jerusalem comes down there, not on the Temple Mount and not on Jerusalem. And I want you to understand that the victory won for you and me was won, you could say, in effect, two times. But I wouldn't want you for a moment to miss out on the distinct difference between the plan of salvation that needed not the heinous, torturous touch of Satan and the plan of salvation that would be crushing enough without humanity nerved and motivated to bring as much misery as possible upon our Messiah and our Master Jesus. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear on the cross, yes, but he bears it before he gets there. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him or he would have fallen to the earth. Most of us haven't heard anyone groan. <laughs> there are few things that can elicit this kind of expression except sorrow and pain that come from the most of intense sufferings. But now as he desired them to spend the night in prayer, he could not bear that they should even witness the agony that he was to endure. I want you to think about this. <laughs> if you were a sinner in the age of Moses' sanctuary temple, you brought a lamb, you walked through a gate, you confessed the sins of the lamb, and then you took a knife in your hands and you killed the animal. If you were a sinner, you watched the agony of your sin snuffing out a life. But in that moment, it was at least quick. What I want you to see in the journey of Jesus and the agony of our sin being placed upon him is an elongated journey of choice to suffer in our place. And Jesus, knowing and having woven together the emotions of the human heart, is about to go through something so terrible that even his disciples who had been on the Mount of Transfiguration were not to see it up close and personal. They were only to get a sense of it from a distance. When we think about what the Scripture says, we recognize from Isaiah 52, verse 14, that it says, His visage was so marred, more than that of any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The desire of ages attributes that quote to Gethsemane, not Golgotha. 
And I want us to understand what's about to happen. God himself is able to deal with the sin problem. So why the cross? We'll talk about it. Awake, O sword, my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. I want you to know that the plan of salvation was established before the foundation of the world, and the Godhead agreed to what this would be and what it would cost and how it would hurt and the agony. And I want you to understand that the laying down of Christ's life needed no Lucifer. None. Zero. And as I've anticipated this message, I've thought to myself about the time when my children are suffering and I can't do anything about it. I've gone as far as medical intervention will go. I've prayed or even a pet laying there in agony and Jesus says, you stay here. You can't bear to even see what I'm going to bear for you. As Christ felt his unity with the Father broken up, He feared that in his human nature he would be unable to endure the coming conflict with the powers of darkness. And when the issues of the conflict with the issues before him, Christ's soul was filled with the dread of separation from God. Satan told him, see him leaning over our dear Jesus, that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be forever. He'd be identified with Satan's kingdom and he would never more be one with God. I want you to see three distinct moments of wrestling in which the progression of Christ's willingness to offer up his life goes deeper and higher all at the same time. The conflict was terrible, she writes on page 687. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and his betrayal, the guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sin of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. There's no need for Golgotha. There's no need for the heinous, torturous complicity of man with Lucifer. And yet there is. The weight of the world's sin on the side of that mountain to the east of Jerusalem was taking from Jesus that which he was offering up and the second death, as the devil whispered in his ears, was what Jesus was giving. The disciples were awakened by the voice of Jesus, but they hardly knew him. His face was so changed by his anguish. Round number two. Again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony, And fainting and exhausted, he staggered back to the place of his former struggle. His suffering was even greater than before, and the agony of soul that came upon him in that agony, his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The cypress and the palm trees were silent witnesses to his anguish, and from their leafy branches dropped heavy dew upon his stricken form. It was as if nature was weeping over its author, wrestling alone with the powers of darkness. It's a wrestling match. And I want you to see the icy fingers of Lucifer gripping Jesus in such a way as to extinguish all hope 
and all life. And then she writes this one sentence. Now had come the hour of the power of darkness. What I want you to understand on the side of that mountain that will split wide open to launch a new eternal era, the era of our Christ and of our Lord, is that on this hillside, marred with the apostasy of Solomon, restored with the faithfulness of Josiah, visited by the wisdom of a Nicodemus, Here is Jesus in the hour of the power of darkness. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonizing soul. The awful moment, next two words, past tense, had come. That moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. Oh, it's coming, and it gets here before the cross. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief they watched? Now listen to this. You thought it was at Calvary. It wasn't. As they watched the Father separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his beloved Son, they would better understand how offensive in his sight is sin. Jesus was not separated from his Father on the cross except by the surrounding darkness of sin pressing on him. But his Father was there, very closely there. But in Gethsemane, his Father actually was stepping back, allowing the two, the protagonist and the antagonist, The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict grew to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil, the legions of apostasy, they watched. They watched intently this great crisis in the work of redemption. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice repeated prayer. The angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be. No way of escape was found for the Son of God. And in this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened and a light shone forth from amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. Christ's agony did not cease, but his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his bloodstained face. 
But listen to these two sentences. He had, past tense, borne that which no human being could ever bear. For he had, past tense, tasted the sufferings of death for every man. If there was ever an age in which we should have well-regulated scrutiny about what can occupy our time, it is now. If there was ever an age in which we ought to ask the Lord to give us the insight that only he could give to save us from being swept away from our eternal inheritance, it is now. So now let's go to Golgotha. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives that Jesus meets his betrayer who feigns fidelity with a hug and a kiss. And Jesus declares he can see through it and I believe appeals to him still. He's across the Kidron Valley. He's in the courts of Caiaphas. And now we come back to Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and all the others who had nodded their heads saying, we will never do that to you, Jesus, never. And I want you to understand something. Jesus did not need to hang on a cross where he could barely breathe, naked, maligned, Scorned, shamed, thirsty, hot, splinters in his back. None of this was necessary in the sense of paying the price for our sins, but it was completely necessary in the great controversy and the plan of redemption. And while I'm not here to suggest that the cross is somehow secondary, it's absolutely central because it goes farther than Gethsemane in explaining the plight of man. And it goes farther than Gethsemane in explaining the suffering of Christ. The cross is the unmasking of Satan and it is the unblinding of those who will look. And like the serpent raised on a pole... I always wondered to myself how that story from the book of Numbers could have anyone who would die. How is it that bitten by the serpent you wouldn't look to the pole and live? And yet the pride of the human heart and the selfishness of sin has the power to do to us what we don't easily recognize ourselves. Now let's go to everybody who's watching on Golgotha's day. Writing in Desire of Ages, page 752, the author states, he might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might leave us completely to ourselves. But when we look at the experience of the apostles, we realize they were blind. And Ellen White will write, man had become blinded to the enormity of sin. 
That's why Peter could say, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. That's why the other 11 could nod their head or the other 10 could nod their head and say, that's never going to happen. And if you think today, sitting in this auditorium or watching from wherever you're watching, you think that the condition of man's hard-heartedness and blindness has changed, I just want you to see the priest hiding the Ark of the Covenant somewhere and the Shekinah glory being withdrawn because when Nebuchadnezzar comes and Babylon finally takes the city, it will not be taken with the presence of God in its midst. How many ways could God say, listen, look, and live, man had become blinded to its enormity. Christ saw how deep is the hold of sin upon the human heart, how few would be willing to break from its power. And he knew without help from God, humanity must perish, and he saw multitudes perishing within reach of abundant help. The apostles never dreamed of a Messiah whose visage would be so marred he could not be recognized. And the apostles never dreamed of a church so corrupt they could take the life of an innocent man, let alone the Son of God. And the apostles never dreamed they were so bad that their love of themselves would defy their, would defy their love for Jesus. And they'd all run away, but they did. And finally, after three denials, Jesus has that momentary ability to peer through the crowd out of Caiaphas' court, and he sees Peter, and there is no animosity, only sorrow. But Peter had resisted the opportunity to be saved from the humiliation of the discovery of his own self. But that's not all. Writing in Desire of Ages, page 758, she says, Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The archapostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer, and by shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren, that's you and me, of being clothed with garments of blackness and the defilements of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. And yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. Was the cross necessary? Absolutely did Jesus come there having already made the decision with the separation of the Father and the sense of the second death? Absolutely. Was it perhaps so that all of us could see what is truly in the heart of humanity? It wasn't enough that God could watch his son suffering on that mountain to the east. It wasn't enough, it appears, that 
We could listen to the voice of Jesus begging for somebody to pray for him where he had prayed for so many others. But for you and for me, there was this expose of what was hiding in our heart that we refused to admit. And on this Sabbath morning before we celebrate the resurrection power of Jesus, he laid down his life, he took it up again. Jesus wants each of us to come to the cross and to say with the humility of a Peter who came back to the Garden of Gethsemane and where Jesus shed great drops of blood, he cried great tears of remorse. He wants us to come back to this place and recognize the depths of darkness that exist beyond our knowing in the heart of every human being and he appeals to us to let him be Lord of absolutely all. You see, the cross becomes the revelation of what man marred by sin can do and be. Satan is unmasked. The angels hadn't seen it all, even though they crowded in around the Garden of Gethsemane. The apostles had not seen it all, even though they listened with limited attentiveness to the agony of their master and saw his face changed. Indeed, the moment where we're at in this 21st century is the ultimate moment for lingering and listening to the voice of the Spirit and letting the power of the cross illuminate lest we ourselves be blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. Thus we have in this dark hour of earth's history almost a complete stranglehold on the kind of love that would turn a sinner out of his path, on the kind of love that would have courage to speak up and to stand up, on the kind of love that would lead somebody to stop and look for a moment deep inside their own heart and acknowledge their need of Jesus, agonized and alone, then splayed out before humanity. You see, friends, the deceitfulness of sin didn't end on a hillside 2,000 years ago. And on this day, preceding the celebration of the resurrection, Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to come to dark Gethsemane understand what the suffering of the Messiah was without the touch of man, but then to proceed on to Golgotha where we can see what man would add. Ashamed to hear our mocking voice calling out amongst the scoffers. You see, the day is coming in which the Mount of Olives is going to split wide open. It's not Zion and it's not Moriah. It's the Mount of Olives because it was there without the cursed touch. And by the way, she makes it very clear. She makes it very, very clear that the city of Jerusalem is accursed. The city of Jerusalem is no longer a sacred place. The curse of God is upon it because of the rejection and crucifixion of Christ. A dark blot of guilt rests upon it and never again will it be a sacred place until it's been cleansed by the purifying fires of heaven. 
And at that time, when this sin-cursed earth is purified from every stain of sin, Christ will again stand upon the Mount of Olives. And as his feet rest upon it, it will part asunder and become a great plain prepared for the city of God. The first animal was slain outside the gates of the garden. Jesus was slain outside the gates of Jerusalem. But he went ahead of the cross and died of his own volition without my hand upon him and without yours, only our sins in the Garden of Gethsemane. That same Jesus who died alone at the hands of the evil one, that same Jesus who suffered at the hands of the church and the government, is coming back again and I want to assure you what happened there at Calvary in spite of all the extra suffering was Jesus grabbed hold of the chains of the tomb and he burst them asunder so that the life gate could be opened and you and I could go in. Satan has one goal. Keep you from understanding what your salvation cost you, the great love of God, the great heart of our Savior. It's my hope and prayer on this Easter weekend that you'll stop and contemplate the sufferings of Christ before he made it to the cross. And that you'll celebrate the unmasking of the angels, the unmasking of humanity, and the life gate open so that all can go in. There's no one listening to me here this morning who's not invited. There's nobody listening to me here this morning who can't go. But the devil would like to blind us all to our need to carry the cross and be confronted by it. It's the pride of our age. It's the blinding power of sin. I wish I could have done different or been better. If I was there, it would be nice for me to say I wouldn't have denied, I wouldn't have betrayed, I wouldn't have slept. But maybe I'm denying in the way I'm living today. Maybe I'm sleeping. Maybe I'm betraying. We had to see. It wasn't enough for Jesus to die on the side of the mountain to the east. We had to see what was in us. We still don't like to see it. You don't want your spouse saying anything to you. You don't want your preacher or your best friend or your teacher. We don't want anybody doing to us what Jesus did to Peter. And really, we didn't want to look at a man hanging on a cross. That's why the scriptures say we hid as it were our faces from him. It was gory, inglorious, and unbecoming. But it still happened. Praise God. He walked out of Gethsemane ready to deal with the most terrible things from his own creation. That's me. That's you. And for me, who might as well have been the nail driver, for me, who might as well have been the scoffer, you saved others, save yourself, 
for me who might have been too embarrassed to be too close to the cross, for me, for you, for whoever, for wherever, for whenever, he opened the life gate. My invitation on his behalf to you is come in and don't refuse the message of the cross which shows us what we're capable of and what he's capable of. It was done by us and it was done for us so that all could come in. Praise the Lord.